I didn't go to the bathroom in my house for weeks after that. My mom made Julie call me on the phone and told me she made the whole thing up. The fire had burned low, and a sense of loneliness crept over me. I arose, and all of a sudden, the door opened up in front of him. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. And today on the apple seed, a terrific set of very gently spooky tales in celebration of Halloween. We're going to hear from Antonio Sacre with a story called La Llorona. And you're going to hear from David Holt a little later on with a story called The Titanic and the Mummy's Curse. And that's just the beginning. You'll hear Mark Twain tales. You'll hear kind of a joke story called The Bloody Finger and more. And we're going to begin with this story from Antonio Sacre. It features one of the scariest characters in all of folklore. But the story itself isn't too scary, so there's not too much to worry about. It's La Llorona from Antonio Sacre here on The Appleseed. My children, she cries for her children. Now the people use the story of La Llorona, the weeping woman, to make their children behave. If the kids are upstairs not going to sleep, the parents will say, you better go to sleep or La Llorona will come and take you away. And the little kids say, okay, mommy, we're going to sleep. When they get a little bit older, they're not quite sure if La Llorona exists. They'll be upstairs messing around. The parents will say, do your homework. We don't want to do our homework. You better do your homework or La Llorona's going to take you away. The kids start doing their homework. They look at each other. Hey, you believe La Llorona will take us away if we don't do our homework? Uh-uh. You believe La Llorona will take us away if we don't do our homework? No way. Why are we doing our homework then? I don't know. The kids will start messing around. At this point, one of the grandparents will sneak up the stairs put their fingers on the door and just barely open it so the kids see this door opening by itself and the grandparents in the hallway will say, The kids will say, Mommy? Papi? Tell La Llorona we're doing our homework! They'll start doing their homework. It works for the rest of the school year. When the kids get to be 7th or 8th graders, they don't really believe in La Llorona anymore, but they love to tell the story at sleepovers and at campfires, and they love to try to get their friends to jump with the story of La Llorona. But the one thing those kids like to do is to swim down by the rivers. Now, the rivers can be really wonderful to swim in, but they can also be really dangerous. When the waters come down from the mountains, if you dive into the river, you can't see a rock. You might hit your head and break your neck, or you might get your feet tangled up in a branch and then the current pushes you down and you drown. So for years and years, parents have tried to keep the kids from swimming in the river when it's dangerous. They've put up fences, they've put up signs. Kids pull the signs down and climb over the fences. Until finally, some genius parent or grandparent 50 or 60 years ago told the kids, hey, go swimming all you want, but if you feel fingers grabbing at your heels or fingernails digging into your shoulders, it's the last thing you will ever feel because it's La Llorona pulling you down. Last summer when I was in Mexico, I heard that there was a sighting of La Llorona down by one of the rivers. I went down and there were these four tough teenage boys hanging at the edge of the water. They were daring each other to go in, but nobody went in. Finally, one of the boys said, I'm not scared, I'm going in. As he walked into that water, 
He put his toe in and he must have stepped on one of those branches because he pulled his toe out like he'd stepped on something sharp and we all jumped back and then we all laughed. And then the four tough teenage boys went into the water when all of a sudden on the other side of the river, this bush began to shake. There was no wind. We heard. We got scared. One of the kids turned around to come out. We heard it again. At this point, we were almost ready to start running down the road when we heard. <laughs> and this little eight-year-old boy comes tumbling out of the bush. He said, I got you. We got so mad. The one kid grabbed that little boy, dunked him like 10 times. Every time he came up, he said, you thought I was like you're on a splash. You guys thought I was like you're on a Afterwards, Miguel, the oldest teenager there, said, I know how you can see La Llorona. He said, all you need to do is put a glass of water in your window. She'll come up from the river and she'll drink it. He said that he tried it on a Wednesday night at midnight. He put that glass of water in the window and he said, Antonio, ¿sabes qué pasó? Do you know what happened? I said, what? He said, nothing. But Thursday night at midnight, do you know what happened? I said, what? He said, nothing. But Friday night at midnight, do you know what happened now? We're all laughing. We said nothing. He said, wrong. Friday night at midnight, I remembered the American legend of Bloody Mary. I heard that in America, if you go into the bathroom, shut the door, shut off the light, look into the mirror, and you say Bloody Mary five times, she comes out of the mirror and she scratches you. He asked me if that was true. I said, oh, yeah. I remember when I was younger, my cousin Julie told me about Bloody Mary. She came down from Boston. She was 13. I was about seven or eight. She said, have you heard of the legend of Bloody Mary? I said, what's that? She said, go into the bathroom. Ah, you're too scared to do it. I'm not scared. Yeah, you're a scaredy cat. I'm not a scaredy cat. I'm going to do it. I went into the bathroom, shut the door, shut off the light, looked into the mirror, too scared, looked into the sink. I said, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary. I looked up into the mirror. You know what I saw? My reflection. Ah! I went running out. Julie said, I knew you were a scaredy cat. She went in there, shut the door, shut off the light. I put my ear to the door to listen. I heard her say, Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. Tony, Bloody Mary's got me. I said, oh no, what are you going to do? Come in and save me. I said, no way. She came out, her arms were all scratched. She said, Bloody Mary got me. I didn't go to the bathroom in my house for weeks after that. My mom made Julie call me on the phone and told me she made the whole thing up. Well, anyway, Miguel told me that he decided to mix the two legends. And he said, Antonio, nunca mezcla dos leyendas. He said, never mix two legends. Because he put that glass of water in his window, went into the bathroom, shut the door, shut off the light, looked into the mirror, and he said, La Llorona, La Llorona. La Llorona, La Llorona, La Llorona. When he came back, the glass was still there, but he heard her voice across the yard. He put four more glasses of water in the window, made sure they were filled all the way up with water, went into the bathroom, said La Llorona as many times as he could stand it. When he came back, one of those glasses was gone. He put his back to the wall. The four glasses were above him on the window ledge. He looked around his room to see if his brother was there, checked under the bed, looked in the closet. It wasn't his brother. On the other side of that thin brick wall, he heard a sickening sound. It sounded like bones scraping brick, and he heard. The sound of La Llorona drinking. 
He peered around the ledge, and just in time, he saw her thin, bony hand pull down the fourth glass. This time, he slid out from the ledge and looked up at the three remaining glasses, just as that bloated, disgusting hand with black, crusty fingernails pulled that third glass down. There was two glasses left, and as she grabbed that second glass, Miguel thought, I am going to prove that La Llorona exists. He stood up, was eye-level with that glass, waited for her to grab that glass, but she didn't. He began to think if he was imagining the whole thing, and just then, that hand reached around that last glass, and her hand lingered there. It didn't move. And he said, now I'm going to prove she exists. He took a deep breath, reached up, and just as he got close to that hand, it reached around and grabbed his hand, pulled him out of the window, looked him square in the eye, and with a horrible voice said... Tengo que ir al baño. I have to go to the bathroom. And with that, she disappeared. Good fun and a spooky tale from Antonio Sacre, La Llorona, here on the Appleseed. Now, I'm going to set up this next story by talking about Mark Twain. Now, Mark Twain, of course, was the pen name of Samuel Clemens. So as I set this up, sometimes I'm going to call him Mark Twain. Sometimes I'm going to call him Sam Clemens. And it's the same guy, of course, right? Anyway, Mark Twain, Sam Clemens, he had a lot of interests, not least of which was an interest in the strange things of which the human mind seemed capable. He endorsed the Society for Psychical Research, and he was himself the proponent of these ideas about how minds can act upon other minds. And some of these ideas were influenced by experiences that he'd had. For example, in 1858, Sam Clemens and his brother, Henry, who was 19 years old, worked aboard the steamboat Pennsylvania on the Mississippi River. And one night, while staying in St. Louis with a relative, Mark Twain, Sam Clemens, had a dream. And in the dream, Sam's brother lay dead in an open coffin made of metal, supported by two chairs, placed in the living room of his relative's house, the same relatives with whom he was staying. Now, in the dream, his brother wore one of Sam's suits, and he had an elaborate bouquet of white flowers on his chest with a single red rose in the center of the bouquet. The dream was so vivid that Clemens couldn't really distinguish it as a dream, and he was convinced that his brother was dead. Upon waking up, he remained convinced it was all true for a few moments, and he was so convinced that he didn't enter the living room, sure that his brother's corpse lay there. When he left the house, he took a walk, and he didn't return to the house until he was convinced that the dream was in fact a dream. Now, two weeks later, Sam Clemens transferred to another riverboat while Henry remained aboard the Pennsylvania. And during the trip back, while the Pennsylvania was entering the Memphis Harbor, one of the ship's boilers exploded, leaving most of the crew members heavily wounded, including Henry. The explosion didn't kill him, but an overdose of morphine administered during his recovery did. And at the funeral parlor, to Sam Clemens' dismay, he saw his brother Henry lying in a metal coffin. The coffin had been paid for by some local ladies who had admired Henry for his beauty. 
Also, the dead brother was wearing Sam Clemens' suit, exactly like in the dream. The suit had been borrowed without Sam's knowledge. And as Sam stood there marveling at the actual manifestations of his dream, exactly like in the dream, an elderly woman walked to the coffin and laid a bucket of white flowers with a single red rose in the center and laid it right on Henry's chest. Well, this experience and others like it left Sam Clemens, Mark Twain, with a lifelong propensity to examine notions of the supernatural, really with the aim of debunking them. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to be a non-believer in such phenomena. But these pesky occurrences in his life and the lives of the people around him kept getting in his way. And while the story that we're going to bring you now is admittedly mostly humorous, it reveals a writer interested in the supernatural and in death. And to provide further context for this story, you should know that in 1868, a New York tobacconist named George Hull, after a church argument about whether there had ever been giants living on the earth, decided to play a prank. He hired some guys to quarry a 10-foot block of stone and he told them that it was going to be used in a monument to Lincoln in New York. But really, secretly, he sent the stone to Chicago instead, where a stone cutter carved from it an enormous, anonymous man. The stone was aged with special acids and stains, and it was beaten with knitting needles to make it look like it had pores. And then Mr. Hull hired some more guys to bury that enormous man on the farm of his cousin, William Newell, in Cardiff, New York. And finally, Mr. Hull hired still more guys to dig a well on the farm where they discovered the giant. Well touted as the petrified remains of an ancient man, people came by the wagon to look, gladly handing over money again and again for a glimpse of the fabulous Cardiff giant. This is a true story. Now, the giant was eventually sold to a syndicate of investors who took the giant to Syracuse, where it drew such crowds that P.T. Barnum, you know, the circus guy, offered them $50,000 for it. When they refused to sell, Barnum sent men to secretly measure and recreate a copy of the giant in wax. He exhibited his wax giant in New York City, insisting to a ravenous public that his was the real Cardiff giant and the other was a fake. And in reference to a gullible public still shelling out the dough to witness one side or the other of this battle of giants, the head of the syndicate that now owned the original fake giant told reporters, there's a sucker born every minute. Those words would in time be incorrectly attributed to the owner of the fake, fake giant, Mr. Barnum. The owners of the original Cardiff giant sued Barnum for calling his giant the real giant, and there's the fake one, but the judge ruled that Barnum could not be penalized for calling a fake giant a fake. <laughs> in any case, Mark Twain, Sam Clemens, gets his digs in on the Cardiff giant in this tale in which the Cardiff giant plays a part. Here's a ghost story by Mark Twain, performed live in the Appleseed studio by our little troop of readers, Suzanne Christensen, Noah and Leah Krzysznik, and me. 
I took a large room far up Broadway in a huge old building whose upper stories had been wholly unoccupied for years until I came. The place had long been given up to dust and cobwebs, to solitude and silence. I seemed groping among the tombs and invading the privacy of the dead that first night I climbed up to my quarters. For the first time in my life, I felt a superstitious dread come over me. And as I turned a dark angle of the stairway and an invisible cobweb swung in my face and clung there, I shuddered as one who had encountered a phantom. I was glad enough when I reached my room and locked out the mold and darkness. A cheery fire was burning in the grate, and I sat down before it with a comforting sense of relief. For two hours, I sat there, thinking of bygone times. Recalling old scenes and summoning half-forgotten faces out of the mists of the past. Listening in fancy to voices that long ago grew silent for all time. And to once familiar songs that nobody sings now. As my reverie softened down to a sadder and sadder pathos. The shrieking of the wind outside softened to a wail. The angry beating of the rain against the panes diminished to a tranquil patter. And one by one, the noises of the street subsided. Until the hurrying footsteps of the last belated straggler died away in the distance and left no sound behind. The fire had burned low and a sense of loneliness crept over me. I arose and undressed, moving on tiptoe about the room, doing stealthily what I had to do. I covered up in bed and lay, listening to the wind and the rain and the faint creaking of distant shutters until they lulled me to sleep. I slept profoundly, but how long I do not know. All at once I awoke and filled with a shuddering expectancy. All was still but my own heart. I could hear it beat. Presently, the bedclothes began to slip away slowly toward the foot of the bed, as if someone were pulling them. I could not stir. I could not speak. Still, the blankets slipped deliberately away till my breast was uncovered. Then, with a great effort, I seized them and threw them over my head. I I waited, listened, Waited. Once more that steady pull began, and once more I lay torpid a century of dragging seconds till my breast was naked again. At last I roused my energies and snatched the covers back to their place and held them with a strong grip. I waited. By and by, I felt a faint tug and took a fresh grip. The tug strangled to a steady strain. It grew stronger and stronger. My hold parted. And for the third time, the blanket slid away. I groaned. Oh. And an, an answering groan came, came from the foot of, of the, the bed. bed. Beaded drops of sweat stood upon my forehead. I was more dead than alive. Presently, I heard heavy footsteps in my room. The step of an elephant, it seemed to me. It was not like anything human. But it was moving away from There me. was relief in that. I heard it approach the door. Pass out without moving bolt or lock. And wander away among the dismal corridors. Straining the floors and joists until they creaked again as it passed. And then, silence reigned once more. When my excitement had calmed, I said to myself, This is a dream. Simply a hideous dream. And so I lay, thinking it over, until I convinced myself that it was a dream, and I was happy again. I got up and struck a light, and found that the locks and bolts were just as I had left them. I took my pipe and lit it, and was just sitting down before the fire, 
When? Down went the pipe, out of my nerveless fingers. The blood forsook my cheeks. And my placid breathing was cut short with a gasp. <gasps> In the ashes on the hearth, side by side with my own bare footprint, was another, so vast that in comparison mine was but an infant. And I had had a visitor, and the elephant foot tread was explained. I, I put out the light and returned to bed, palsied with fear. I lay a long time, peering into the darkness and listening. Then I heard a grating noise overhead. Like the dragging of a heavy body across the floor. In distant parts of the building, I heard the muffled slamming of doors. Stealthy footsteps creeping in and out among the corridors, up and down the stairs. Sometimes these noises approached my door, hesitated, and went away again. I heard the clanking of chains faintly in remote passages. I heard muttered sentences, half-uttered screams that seemed smothered violently. And the swish of invisible garments. The rush of invisible wings. Then I became conscious that my chamber was invaded, that I was not alone. I heard sighs and breathings about my bed and mysterious whisperings. Three little spheres of a soft phosphorescent light appeared on the ceiling directly over my head, clung and glowed there a moment, and then dropped, two of them upon my face and one upon the pillow. They spattered liquidly and felt warm. Intuition told me they had turned to gouts of blood as they fell. And I needed no light to satisfy myself of that. I saw pallid faces, dimly luminous, and white, uplifted hands. The whispering ceased. The voices and the sounds. And a solemn stillness followed. I, I waited, waited and, and listened. I felt that I must have light or die. I was weak with fear. I slowly raised myself up toward a sitting posture, and my face came in contact with a clammy hand! I fell, I fell back, back like, like a stricken invalid. Then I heard the rustle of a garment. It seemed to pass to the door and go out. When everything was still once more, I crept out of bed, sick and feeble, and lit the gas with a hand that trembled as if it were aged with a hundred years. In the same moment, I heard that elephantine tread again. I noted its approach. Nearer and nearer along the musty halls, and dimmer and dimmer the light waned. The tread reached my very door and paused. The light had dwindled to a sickly blue, and all things about me lay in a spectral twilight. The door did not open, and yet I felt a faint gust of air fan my cheek, and presently was conscious of a huge, cloudy presence before me. I watched it with fascinated eyes. A pale glow stole over the thing. Gradually its cloudy folds took shape. An arm appeared, then legs, then a body, and at last a great sad face looked out of the vapor. Stripped of its filmy housings, muscular and comely, the majestic Cardiff giant loomed above me. <laughs> All my misery vanished, oh. for a child might know that no harm could come with that benignant countenance. My cheerful spirits returned at once, and in sympathy with them, the gas flamed up brightly again. Never a lonely outcast was so glad to welcome company as I was to greet the friendly giant. I said, Why is it nobody but you? Do you know I have been scared to death for the last two or three hours? I am most honestly glad to see you. I wish I had a chair. Here, here, don't try and sit down on that thing. 
But it was too late. He was in it before I could stop him, and down he went. I never saw a chair shivered so in my life. Stop! Stop! You'll ruin it! Too late. There was another crash, and another chair was resolved to its original elements. Confound it. Haven't you got any judgment at all? Do you want to ruin all the furniture on the place? Here, here, you petrified fool! But it was no use. Before I could arrest him, he had sat down on the bed, and it was a melancholy ruin. Now what sort of a way is that to do? First you come lumbering about the place, bringing a legion of vagabond goblins along with you to worry me to death, and then, when I overlook an indelicacy of costume which would not be tolerated anywhere by cultivated people except in a respectable theater, you repay me by wrecking all the furniture you can find to sit down on. And why will you? You damage yourself as much as you do me. You've broken off the end of your spinal column and have littered up the floor with chips of your hands till the place looks like a marble yard. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You are big enough to know better. Well, I will not break any more furniture. But what am I to do? I've not had a chance to sit down for a century. And the tears came into his eyes. <sighs> Poor devil. I said. Should not have been so harsh with you. Uh, and you're an orphan too, no doubt. Uh, but sit down on the floor here. Nothing else can stand your weight. And besides, we cannot be sociable with you away up there above me. I want you down where I can perch on this high stool and gossip with you face to face. So, he sat down on the floor and lit a pipe, which I gave him. Threw one of my red blankets over his shoulders. Inverted my bath on his head, helmet fashion, and made himself picturesque and comfortable. Then he crossed his ankles while I renewed the fire and exposed his prodigious feet to the grateful warmth. I noticed he looked tired, and I spoke of it. Tired? He said. Well, I should think so. I will tell you all about it since you've treated me so well. I am the spirit of the petrified man that lies across the street there in the museum. I'm the ghost of the Cardiff giant. I can have no rest, no peace, till they've given that poor body burial again out there under Newell's farm. I love that place. I love it as one loves his old home. There's no peace for me like the place, the peace I feel when I'm there. Now, what was the most natural thing for me to do to make men satisfy this wish? Terrify them into it! Haunt the place where the body lay. So I haunted the museum night after night. I even got other spirits to help me, but it did no good, for nobody ever comes to the museum at midnight. <laughs> well, then it occurred to me to come over the way, haunt this place a little while. Night after night, we've shivered around through these mildewed halls, dragging chains and groaning and whispering and tramping up and down stairs, till to tell you the truth, I'm almost worn out. But when I saw a light in your room tonight, I roused my energies again and went at it with a deal of the old freshness. But I'm entirely tired out. Give me, I beseech you, give me some hope. I lit off my perch in a burst of excitement and exclaimed, This transcends everything that ever did occur. Why, you poor blundering old fossil. You have had all your trouble for nothing. You have been haunting a plaster cast of yourself. The real Cardiff Giant is in Albany. A fact. <laughs> The original fraud was ingeniously and fraudfully duplicated and exhibited in New York as the only genuine Cardiff giant. To the unspeakable disgust of the owners of the real Colossus. At the very same time that the latter was drawing crowds at a museum in Albany. Confound it, don't you know your own remains? I never saw such an eloquent look of shame. 
of pitiable humiliation overspread a countenance before. The petrified man rose slowly to his feet and said, Honestly? Is that true? As true as I am sitting here. He stood irresolute a moment, unconsciously from old habit, thrusting his hands where his pantaloons pockets should have been, and finally said, Well, I never felt so absurd before. <laughs> My son, if there's any charity left in your heart for a poor, friendless phantom like me, don't let this get out. <laughs> Think how you would feel if you had made such an ass of yourself. I heard his stately tramp die away, step by step down the stairs and out into the deserted street, and felt sorry that he was gone, poor fellow. And sorrier still that he had carried off my blanket and my bathtub. A Ghost Story by Mark Twain. Here on the Appleseed. Super fun to bring you that tale written by Mark Twain, performed by Suzanne Christensen, Leah Kershisnik, and Noah Kershisnik, and me. And we're going to be right back with a lot more here on the Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be back with you on this special episode of The Appleseed. If you're just joining us a moment ago, a Mark Twain story called A Ghost Story, appropriate to the episode, filled with gently spooky tales in celebration of Halloween. A story called The Titanic and the Mummy's Curse, coming up, a tale from David Holt. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Stories come into our lives in so many ways, from families passing them along, telling to telling, from the pages of great books, from radio and podcasts, through songs, and of course, through the things we see on screen. And exploring all of the ways that great stories get into our hearts and minds is part of what we love here on the Appleseed. I'm joined in the studio today by Cole Wissinger. Cole, it's great to have you here with us. Hello, Sam. Cole is a longtime member of our BYU Radio family, and people have heard him talking about movies, and we want to talk a little bit about movies. I think I can do that. (laughs) You've asked me the one thing that I think I can do. And we invited you to come, you know, prepared with a, with a movie in your pocket. And this movie is kind of a trip in the way, way, way back machine, right? I mean, this is sure. before <laughs> any of us were born, but a movie that was important to you. And we're talking about what movie? Yeah, it's 1932's The Mummy. My, we're As Boris opposed Karloff, to right? 1999's The Mummy or 2016, 17's The Mummy. Right. <laughs> this one is the original The no Mummy. No Brendan as far Fraser, as I'm no Tom Cruise. Right. We're talking Boris Karloff. Man. The Universal Monsters. And, right, so I, I'm a younger kid to this. And so it doesn't <laughs> take much to find a good movie that happened before I was born. But I can go way back on this. And this is the one where I really think that I have a good story behind why I like this. And then, of course, why I like horror movies in yeah, general. Today. Where did your affection for a 1932 mummy movie come from? Well, I'll tell you. I was four years old, and (laughs) my parents were watching Turner Classic movies, as they often did. Yeah. I was just kind of there, and it was getting kind of late, and when you're four, you have 
a bedtime, generally speaking. Sure. But my parents, uh, my parents weren't strict about it. They just they kind of let me parent myself in a lot of ways. Like ah, he'll figure it out. Like when he gets tired, he'll come upstairs. I, I didn't get tired. So the movie that we were watching ended, and then the mummy with its like grandiose spooky theme in the background started coming on and they were like oh that's probably too scary and i said no 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 please 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 wow let me stay up and watch this and they said oh sure and they went upstairs and figured that i would be up in two shakes and yeah, yeah. Be scared out of my mind and have so wait a minute through. let me get this straight so your parents said uh he'll get scared in a minute and come to bed exactly <laughs> that was their parenting strategy and i love them for it because yeah. If they hadn't, I wouldn't have this story. Sure, sure. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it starts and, and they kind of go upstairs and my dad falls asleep pretty fast. They didn't realize that I had stayed up and watched the entire thing. Oh, wow. And it had bled into, I, I think it was, you know, Bride of Frankenstein or, or one of their <laughs> Creature from the Black Lagoon. One of those other sure, universal monsters yeah. was coming on right after it. My dad wakes up because my mom woke him up and said, hey, go downstairs and check on that kid. See if he just fell asleep on the couch. Sam, I was two inches from the dang TV screen, just riveted <laughs> by eyed. these monsters. <laughs> and that was the beginning of kind of a long love affair with monster movies. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yes. So even today, my favorite genre is horror. My favorite month of the year is October because I go through the entire month and watch horror movies just every single day. But my favorite brand of the horror is still the monster, the monster and what movie. it means. And, and again, when I'm four, I wasn't thinking about like why we're scared of monsters or why we dress up characters in these very obvious physical scary things sure. to symbolize yeah. the horrors within. Or I just knew the monsters were cool <laughs> and that I liked dressing up on Halloween and I liked all those things. Do you go back? I mean, certainly one attitude that some people have is, well, those old movies were the doorway into the movies that I watch now, but the movies that I watch now are really scary when those old movies are just kind of schlocky or whatever. Yeah. you know. But as you look back, are there things about those old Boris Karloff performances? Are there things about the 1932 version of The Mummy that are still affecting for you. Absolutely, you because it was more reliant on the acting, right? The yeah. next wave of kind of monster movies we got were in the 60s with the hammer horrors, and the only thing that they added was it was in color, and so now the blood is red. And <laughs> and at the time, that was enough to just scare people, but... Just a lot of red you know, blood. And then, of course, like, like we've kind of mentioned, the new Tom Cruise one, not scary at all. They just threw a bunch of CGI at the screen and yeah. made it into more of an action thing. Brendan Fraser was funny when he did his mummy, but, like, the original mummy is the only one that still scares me because it was reliant on that interaction. And my favorite thing about those monsters is when they zoom in on the eyes, <laughs> especially when it's Dracula. Or sure. The shading and, and the way they had to arrange the lights. I can just... see the shots in my head right now. Those, And it is exactly as you describe. You know, you've got the, the band of light across mm -hmm. their eyes, you know, and everything else is all you can see is Bella Lugosi's eyes as exactly. Dracula or, or whoever you're watching. And it you draws know. you in, and that's where you kind of get a more intimate scare than when there's just, you know, bright red blood splashing around or CGI planes crashing or whatever it is. <laughs> These days, you can watch just about anything. You know, oh, it's beautiful. It, there, there were days, of course, when you thought, boy, I'd like to see such and such a movie, and if it wasn't available at Blockbuster, you know. Or, I got very or, lucky that night in 1996 when yeah. it just happened to be on happened Turner Classic on Movies. TV. Yeah. And these days, these things are just sort of readily available wherever you, you know, wherever you happen to be. Yep. And my wife and I found ourselves watching the the old Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Absolutely. <laughs> 
one of my personal favorites because you get all those mashups that they were doing with the Universal, uh, but you you know toss in a bit of who's on first for good That's measure. That's right, that, and it's the old, it's the guys. Boris Karloff isn't in it, but Bella Lugosi is, and I mean it's the it's the Dragon those... Lon Chaney Jr. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. Well, listen, if you haven't seen some of those old. Universal monster movies, right? Mm-hmm. The Mummy and Dracula and Frankenstein's Monster with Boris Karloff. And those are worth digging up. You will have a better time than you think you will. My grandparents <laughs> grew up with them, and I ended up growing up with them, too. And I will I forever imagine four-year-old Cole in front of the TV when his parents have said, uh, he'll scare himself and come to bed in a moment. What a great story. Not so much. <laughs> it worked out for me. Well, what a pleasure to have Cole Wissinger with us to chat just a little bit about The Mummy, the 1932 classic. If you want to dig up that, we highly recommend it. These are great times for you to share some of those stories with the people that you love. Cole, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Lots more coming up on The Appleseed. Great stories really do come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to hear from Cole Wissinger about a great old film and his experience with it. Lots more coming up on The Appleseed. Stick around for David Holt with The Titanic and The Mummy's Curse. That's coming up in just a little bit here on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. Thanks for joining us for a special episode filled with very gently spooky stories in celebration of Halloween. Before we get to our next tale, you know, sometimes we get scared of almost nothing. Here's a tiny little story from Samantha Danes, one of our assistant producers, about something that might have scared, well, really, just about any of us. I scare easily. Very easily. I'm incredibly jumpy. And this is a story of a time when I jumped for a reason that I didn't particularly need to. Near the end of the semester, a few months ago, I was alone in my apartment after finishing a final exam. I had a friend who I hadn't seen in years who was coming to visit. I was so excited, but also growing impatient. She said she would be here nearly an hour ago. To fill time, I started cleaning the apartment, doing the dishes, sweeping the floor, I tied up the trash bag and started lugging it outside. It was heavy, and I found myself pulling it behind me on the ground as I went to open the door. I opened the door to take the trash out, and standing there with her hand raised as if she was about to knock on the door was my friend. And I screamed. Not an excited scream. No, I had been so wrapped up in cleaning that I had completely forgotten she was coming. So when I opened the door and saw someone standing there, it didn't register to me that it was my friend. I was just so shocked that I screamed in terror. I was so scared that I fell on the floor next to the trash bag. Of course, my friend thought this was hysterical and started laughing her head off. Her favorite thing to do was make fun of me. After I had calmed down a little bit and my adrenaline calmed down, I gave her a hug. It's not my fault that I'm super jumpy, but I'll admit it was pretty funny. 
We've all done it, haven't we? Been scared too badly, jumped a little too high at something that really wasn't that scary when we look back on it. Maybe you've got a tale like that. Those make for fun storytelling around the kitchen table or the living room. Up next, the great storyteller David Holt with something from a collection of stories called Mostly Ghostly Stories. This one is probably the spookiest tale we're going to bring you today. It's called The Titanic and the Mummy's Curse. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. She was 18 years old, recently out of high school, pregnant, and married to the richest man in the world, John Jacob Astor. At 47, he was old enough to be her father. Astor's divorce from his wife of 22 years and his marriage to young Madeline Force was a disgrace to high society in 1912 and created a whirlwind of gossip in America. So the newlyweds fled to Europe to get away from the press and the prying public. But reporters followed them everywhere, and after five months of traveling, they decided to return home. John Jacob Astor booked a suite of the most expensive rooms on the maiden voyage of the most luxurious ship ever built, the HMS Titanic. The maiden voyage was the social event of the season for the wealthy, but it was rumored that when George Vanderbilt and J.P. Morgan heard they would be sailing with Astor and his young wife, they canceled their trips, even though their luggage was already on board. Because of his millions, Astor and his wife were put at the captain's table every night for dinner. Sitting next to Madeline was a charming English writer, William T. Stead. He was a natural storyteller and fascinated everybody at the table with stories about his interest in ghosts and spiritualism and his trip to a haunted castle on the Scottish border. Then on Saturday, April 13th, he transfixed his dinner companions when he told them the story of the mummy's curse. Have all of you been to the new Egyptian room at the British Museum? They had. Do you remember a carved coffin lid of the priestess of Amun-Ra? There was no mummy with it, no casket, just the coffin lid. Some of them nodded their heads. Let me tell you the story of what happened to the mummy. You see, the priestess of Amun-Ra lived some 3,000 years ago. When she died, she was laid to rest in an ornate wooden coffin, and it was buried deep in a vault at Luxor on the banks of the Nile. In 1889, four rich young Englishmen were touring the excavations there. They were all hoping to bring back some antiquities to England, and asked if any of the small sculptures found in the tombs were for sale. The archaeologist said nothing was for sale to tourists, but oddly, he would be willing to sell an exquisitely carved and painted mummy case containing the remains of someone they were calling the Priestess of Amun-Ra. When the young men asked him why he would sell such a rare piece, the archaeologist said the locals felt it was cursed and refused to work anywhere near it. You see, just a few days earlier, when three Egyptian workers discovered the mummy, they opened the lid of the coffin and choked to death on the foul dust rising from the body. If the Englishman would take the mummy away, the archaeologists could get the Egyptian crew back to work. Well, the young men fancied themselves adventurers, and a little excitement was just what they wanted. So they pooled their cash and bought the casket and the mummy took it to their hotel and put it in one of the rooms, and decided they would meet for dinner to celebrate their good fortune. But when the time came, only three of them showed up. 
After a while, the men got a little worried and went looking for their partner. The casket was still in his room, but their friend was nowhere to be found. One of the hotel staff said he thought he saw the young Englishman walking out into the desert. They waited and waited, and then they searched for him, but their friend was never seen again. A few days later, when loading the casket in a truck, it slipped out of their hands and gashed the foot of one of the partners. By nightfall, his foot was swollen and severely infected. The very next day, gangrene had set in and his entire leg had to be amputated. Another man in the foursome found that when he returned home to England, the bank holding his entire savings had failed. He had lost everything and was eventually reduced to selling matches on the street. Now the fourth man was determined to get his money out of the cursed mummy. Luckily, he found a London businessman willing to pay handsomely for the coffin. Afraid he would be cheated, he would only take cash. And on his way home from making the deal, he was robbed and severely beaten and died two days later. The London businessman hoped to exhibit the magnificent coffin and make a lot of money himself. But after three of his family members were injured in a train wreck, he donated it to the British Museum. As the coffin was being unloaded from a truck in the museum courtyard, the truck suddenly went into reverse and crushed a passerby. Well, eventually, the priestess of Amun-Ra was installed in the Egyptian room at the museum. And that's when the trouble really started. The museum's night watchman frequently heard frantic hammering and sobbing coming from the coffin. At night, other exhibits were found broken and thrown around the room. When a guard died while on night duty, all the other guards in that section of the museum quit. So finally the mummy was carried down to the basement. The museum director figured it couldn't do any harm down there. Within a week, one of the helpers was seriously ill, and the supervisor of the move was found dead at his desk. Now last year, because of all the trouble, the museum decided to sell the mummy but keep the beautiful coffin lid for display. No museum in Europe would buy the mummy or even take it on loan. Word had gotten out that almost 20 people had met with misfortune, disaster, or death from handling the mummy. Although no one believed it was really cursed, no one wanted to take the chance either. Eventually, a hard-headed American archaeologist said all the disasters were just made-up stories or sheer coincidence, paid a good price for the mummy, and arranged for it to be shipped to New York. Williamstead paused and looked at everyone at the table. Not taking any chances, the American wanted to ship the mummy on the safest, fastest ship in the world. My friends, we are sailing on that very ship, the HMS Titanic. The cursed mummy of the priestess of Amun-Ra is in the cargo hold directly below us. The listeners sat in stunned silence for a moment, until Madeline Astor said, Is this true? <laughs> I'm sure Mr. Stead doesn't let the truth get in the way of a good story, said Mr. Astor. Captain Smith said, I can assure you there is no mummy on board my ship. The next night was April 14th, when the Titanic hit the iceberg and sank to the bottom of the Atlantic. Madeline Astor survived, but the last time anyone saw John Jacob Astor he was clinging to an overturned lifeboat next to William Stead. Both men perished. <laughs>
but William Stead's tale didn't die with him. When reporters talked to survivors, some recalled the story of the mummy's curse at the dinner table the night before. The press picked it up and embellished the tale, saying the archaeologists had stowed the mummy under the seat of a lifeboat, then it was loaded on the Carpathia and made it to America with the survivors. Some say Madeline went to her grave, wondering if that mummy had been on board and the curse was true. If you go to the British Museum today, you can see the lid of the priestess Amun-Ra's coffin. It's the very same casket lid that inspired William Stead to entertain his guests with a story of the mummy's curse. An unsinkable story that's still part of the lore of the Titanic. The Titanic and the Mummy's Curse from the great storyteller David Holt. And we're going to lighten things up with our last story. It's a Halloween joke called Bloody Finger, told for you by Big Joe Pagliuca. Happy to bring it to you on the Appleseed. This is the story of Bloody Finger. Once upon a time, there were three brothers and they were going for a hike through the woods. And near the end of the day, they decided to stop and take a break and eat the food they had packed. So they sat down on a rock to eat the food. And as they were eating, the oldest brother looked, and he said, Hey, which way did we come from? Which way are we going? They looked that way, but it wasn't that way. They looked that way, but it wasn't that way. They looked over here, they looked over there, but they couldn't find their way. The oldest brother said, Oh, no. We're lost, said we need to find some place to spend the night because it's going to get dark very soon. And so they looked around to try to find a place to stay, but they couldn't find anything at all. But then they found a road, and they followed the road down to the end, and there at the end of the road was a very old house. It looked like no one had lived there for a long time. And the oldest brother said, well, let's go and see if anyone lives there, and we could ask if we could spend the night. The middle-sized brother said, I'm not going up there. The little brother said, I'm not going up there either. And the oldest brother said, I'm pretty brave. I'll go and see. And so he went up the front steps, and he knocked on the door. And no one seemed to answer. And so he knocked again. And all of a sudden, the door opened up in front of him. And he went inside the house. And it was very dark and dusty. And the oldest brother looked around and he said, Hello? Anybody here? Anybody home? And all of a sudden, he heard a voice. And the voice said, Bloody finger. Bloody finger. And he said, Hey, who said that? Who said that? And the voice said, Bloody finger, bloody finger. And the oldest brother screamed, ah! and ran out the door. Well, the middle-sized brother looked and said, I guess I'll go and see if anybody's there. And he went up the front steps, and he opened up the door and went inside. And he said, hello? 
Anybody here? Anybody home? And then he heard the voice, and the voice said, Bloody finger, bloody finger. And he said, hey, who said that? Who said that? And the voice said, bloody finger, bloody finger. And the middle-sized brother screamed, ah! and ran out the door. Well, the little brother looked, and he said, I wonder what made those two goofballs run away. He said, I'll figure it out. And so he went up the front steps, and he opened up the door, and he went inside, and he said, Hello? Anybody here? Anybody home? And the voice said, Bloody finger, bloody finger. And the voice seemed to be coming from the left. And so he went down the hallway. And that hallway was long and dark and had spiderwebs growing up on every side. And he got to the end of the hallway and there was a set of stairs. And he said, where did that voice come from? And then he heard the voice. And the voice said, bloody finger, bloody finger. And it was coming from up the steps. So he went up the dark, creaky steps. He went up one step at a time, step by step by step. And when he got to the top of the steps, the hallway went to the left and to the right. And he said, where did that voice come from? And then he heard the voice. And the voice said, bloody finger, bloody finger. And the voice was coming from down the right hallway. And so he went to the right. He went down the hallway. And there were pictures on the walls. And people in those pictures. And everybody in those pictures looked like they were looking right at him. <laughs> and he walked to the end of the hallway. And there at the end were two doors. One door on the left and one door on the right. And he said, where did that voice come from? And then he heard the voice, and the voice said, Bloody finger, bloody finger. And it was coming from the door on the left. And so he opened up the door. And he went inside, and he clicked on the lights. And he looked, and there were books on the shelves. And there was a table and a chair. And he looked around. And he said, where did that voice come from? And then he heard the voice. And the voice said, bloody finger, bloody finger. And he looked across the room. And there was a door. And he went up to the door and grabbed the door handle. And he turned the handle. And as he was turning the door handle, he heard the voice. And the voice said, Bloody finger, bloody finger. And he turned the door handle all the way. And he opened up the door. And when he opened up the door, there inside was a monster, a big green monster. And the monster looked at the youngest brother. And the monster said, Bloody finger, bloody finger. 
Can you get me a band-aid? <laughs> and the little brother said, sure. And he reached into his pocket and pulled out a band-aid and put it around the monster's bloody finger. And the monster said, gee, thank you very much. And the little brother said, sure. And the little brother asked the monster if they could spend the night. And the monster said it would be okay. And he invited them in, and they all came in, and he even made them milk and cookies, and they had a wonderful time. And the next morning they found their way back home, and when they got back home they told everybody the story about Bloody Finger. And that is the end. <laughs> Bloody finger told for you by Big Joe Pagliuca. That wraps up a special hour of the apple seed filled with very gently spooky tales in celebration of Halloween. We wish you and your family a lot of fun during this time. I'm Sam Payne. Can't wait to be with you again on the apple seed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by the apple seed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.